Amen. Well, I want you to invite you this morning to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans uh, chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and verse 14. And uh, we have been in a series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. We've been considering the theme of living the gospel. And as we've gotten to Romans chapter 8, as many of you know, uh, I've slowed down because it's so full of such great content. And uh, so we've slowed down and we've been working through Romans chapter 8 at a little bit of a slower pace. And this morning, you'll notice in the bulletin that the title of the sermon is Sons and Heirs. Well, as I was working on the passage this week, I decided that there was too much in the text for us to cover this morning. So this week you're going to get sons, and next week, Lord willing, you'll get heirs, okay? So this morning will be sons. And uh, we'll look at verses 14 through 16 this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at verse 17. So I'm going to begin reading for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'll read through to verse 17, and then we'll focus this morning on verses 14 to 16. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation... For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the clarity and the power and the truth of your word. We pray now that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us into truth as we consider your word and transform us by the power of your word. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are currently in this series in Romans chapter 6 through 8, and the theme of Romans 6 through 8 is sanctification. Now, that's kind of a big word, but sanctification simply means to set apart or to make holy. And what Paul is discussing in Romans chapter 6 through 8 is the process by which we are set apart, by which we become increasingly holy. We could say it this way, that the Christian is to grow in sanctification and to become more and more like Jesus in holiness. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Now back in Romans chapter 6, so we, we, we've been out of our series for a few weeks, so I want to just give you a sense of the whole so we can get back into it. But in Romans chapter 6, you might remember that Paul teaches us that one of the keys to sanctification, to growing in holiness, is knowing. We must know who we are in Christ Jesus if we are to grow in holiness and to become more like Jesus. So, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Or in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now in Romans chapter 8, what happens is that in many ways, Paul returns to this theme. He returns to this theme of knowing. We must know who we are in Christ. And so in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, Paul describes the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. He draws this contrast between the two. But then in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he shifts. He shifts from describing the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit to then applying or ascribing that difference to those who are members in the church in Rome. So notice this. Look at verse 9. He says there, you. So he's addressing them now personally. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. He wants them to know who they are. You are in the Spirit. Look at this in verses 10 through 11. He continues this idea. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then we see it again this morning in our text in verse 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So do you see see the theme here? Paul again and again is saying, you must know who you are. You must know who you are in Christ Jesus. And in particular, here in Romans chapter 8, you must know that now that you are in Christ, you are in His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells in you. And it's absolutely essential that we understand this reality if we are to make progress in our Christian life, if we are to grow in sanctification. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, this, these verses I read this morning, the first half of Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks extensively to us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in our text this morning, Paul wants us to know that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can know that they are sons of God. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can know that he or she is a son of God. Now why should you care about this? Why should you care about what the Apostle Paul is saying here? Well, because in many ways, what Paul is saying here in these verses, Paul is describing the life of a Christian. And in this way, Paul's words are both a test and they are an assurance. So consider this. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian, but you're here this morning because you want to know what a Christian is. Paul's words here in these verses are kind of like a paternity test. You know, sometimes based on different circumstances, there may be uncertainty regarding the identity of a child's father. And Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 16 in this sense serve as a paternity test so that you might know whether or not God is your father. In addition to that, you may be here this morning, maybe you say, I'm already a Christian. You've trusted in Christ. You've trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And it's important for you to understand this morning that in Romans chapter 8, Paul is not aiming to undermine your confidence, your assurance that you are a child of God. But rather, Paul's aim is to give you confidence, to give you assurance that you do belong to God, that He is your Father, and that you are His. Listen to J.I. Packer, a Christian theologian. He has famously made this statement regarding the fatherhood of God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, considering why is this passage important, consider the words of J.I. Packer. He says, quote, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child 
and having God as his father. Father is the Christian name for God, end of quote. So if you're here this morning, you're not sure whether you're a Christian, Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 16 is like a paternity test to discern whether or not God is your father. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 16 is intended to be an assurance, a comfort that yes, you do belong to God and it is absolutely essential that you know and experience this reality. If you were to understand Christianity itself, if you were to make progress in your Christian life and to become more like Christ. So I want us to see in our text this morning four assurances, four assurances that we are in fact sons of God, that we are children of God. The four is following. This is our outline this morning if you're taking notes. First, the direction of your life. Secondly, the gift of sonship. Third, the cry of adoption. And fourth, the witness of the Spirit. So first, the first assurance, the direction of your life. Look there in verse 14 and we read these words. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, in order for us to understand verse 14, we need to go back to verse 13 and see that there's a significant connection between the two. So look there in verse 13 and you see these words. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Now, we considered this passage a few weeks ago, and you might remember, if you were here when we looked at this text, you might remember John Owen's kind of famous axiom that he drew from this text. It goes like this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, the Christian you see here in the text is the one in verse 13 who puts to death the deeds of the flesh. This is the life of the Christian. The the Christian is no longer in the flesh. And so he doesn't surrender himself to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because that results in death. The Christian is indwelt by the Spirit, and therefore the Christian is committed to putting to death the deeds of the flesh so that they might live. Now notice here in verse 14, so that's what Paul says in verse 13. Notice verse 14 begins with the word for or because. For, and this is the reason why. This is the reason why the people in 13 engage in the activity that they do. This is the reason why they put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because, verse 14, of who they are. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's why they put to death the deeds of the flesh. Do you see the connection between the two? They put to death the deeds of the flesh because they are sons of God. Now, what does it mean then in verse 14 to be led by the Spirit? Those who are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God, right? So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Does it mean, and sometimes we use that language in this way, Does it mean that God leads you to the right job? Or He leads you to purchase the right home? Or He leads you to the right college? Or He leads you to the person that you're supposed to marry? 
Well, the Holy Spirit, consistent with working with God's Word, does provide guidance and direction in our lives. But understand, this is not the way that Paul is speaking about the leading of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. In verse 14, based on what we've read in verse 13, it is clear that what Paul has in mind here is that to be led by the Spirit is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. You see it there in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So to be led by the Spirit is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is to battle, it is to wage war against our selfishness, against our pride, against our lack of love, against our lust and our greed and our envy and our unbelief. And Paul says if you're doing that, not perfectly, but genuinely, consistently, That is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That doesn't happen naturally. That doesn't happen in the flesh. That's a work of the Spirit. Some of you this morning will testify that that battle, that war against sin rages in your life and sometimes it's intense and The battles lost are discouraging, but the victories are so sweet. And Paul says in this text that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are being led, if you are being controlled, if you are being governed, if you are being directed by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, then that is evidence, that is assurance that you are in fact a son of the living God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The second assurance is this. So the first assurance is the direction of your life. Are you being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh? The second assurance is this. The gift of sonship. Look there in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So one of the things that Paul has taught us all through this section, Romans 6 through 8, is that to be in the flesh is to be enslaved to sin. And we all know this experience because all of us at one point in our lives were in the flesh. And to be in the flesh means that sin directs Our thoughts, it inflames our passions and desires. It determines our goals and our ambitions. Sin deadens us to life in God and leaves us trapped and consumed in a life of self. It's disinterested and cut off from God. And what Paul says here is that when you trusted in Jesus, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That is, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to sin that results in fear. So you were enslaved to sin before, 
But when you trusted in the Lord Jesus, that slavery was broken. You weren't given another spirit of slavery to lead you back into sin and fear. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because oftentimes, when when one is in the flesh, when we're enslaved to sin, oftentimes we experience fear, the fear of being caught, the fear of being exposed, the fear of shame. Ultimately, the fear of God's judgment. And so Paul says, when you trusted in the Lord Jesus, when you surrendered your life to Him, you did not receive the spirit of slavery that you fall back into fear, but rather you received the spirit of adoption as sons. This is remarkable that Paul here would identify us as sons of God. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel was frequently referred to as the Son of God. We see this through the Old Testament. One example is in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Israel is under Egyptian bondage and slavery. And God comes to Moses and He says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Egypt. And God gives Moses direction in terms of what he's to say to Pharaoh. But notice, as God gives Moses this direction, notice how God identifies His people Israel. In Exodus 4, and 23, we read, Then, this is the Lord speaking, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel, although they were identified as God's son, they failed over and over again to be a faithful son before God. But then the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, people are saying all these different things about me, that I'm a prophet, that I'm all these different things, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the good confession in Matthew chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what we see in the life of Jesus as his life unfolds is that in every way that Israel was an ungrateful and unfaithful son, The Lord Jesus was a faithful and obedient Son. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus, the true and faithful, obedient Son, when we trust that He died on the cross and took the punishment for all of our unfaithful rebellion, through union with Jesus, the true and faithful, obedient Son, we ourselves are adopted into the family of God and become sons of God. And this spirit, as we trust in the Lord Jesus and we're granted this spirit of adoption, this spirit of adoption is entirely different from a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. You see, in Christ, we don't have to fear being caught. We've been caught and pardoned. In Christ, we don't have to fear being exposed because we've openly confessed our sins and we've been forgiven. In Christ, we don't have to fear shame because we have humbled ourselves before God and in His mercy, He's clothed us 
with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we don't have to fear judgment and banishment because we have been justified and adopted into God's family and we have been granted a permanent seat at our Father's table. Listen to the words of J.I. Packer again as he takes this truth of the fatherhood of God and he seeks to apply it to our hearts. He says, quote, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it to yourself over and over again. First thing in the morning. Last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows that it is all utterly and completely true. End of quote. The second assurance that we are sons of God is the gift of sonship. Through Jesus Christ, we have been granted the status of sons. The third assurance is this, the cry of adoption. So first is the direction of your life. Second, the gift of sonship. And then third, the cry of adoption. Look there again in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So notice this, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, so that we might receive the gift of adoption and the status as sons. So when we trust in the one true and faithful Son, we ourselves are adopted into the family and declared sons of God. In addition to that, God sent His Spirit so that we might know and experience the gift of adoption. There's a distinction One could be adopted, so for example, one could be adopted into a human family and not experience the spirit of adoption. An orphan could be adopted into a family and told, this is Joe, he's your father. And the orphan knows that Joe's his father. But he never experiences He never feels the comfort, the security, the blessing of Joe being his father. You see, good dads not only want their children to know that they are their father, they also want their children to experience it, to feel it. So a good dad doesn't just say, I'm your dad. Fact to be known. Good dads embrace their sons and daughters. They love on them. They desire to spend time with them. They talk with them and want to know about their joys and about their sorrows. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that God has sent His Spirit so that we might not only know that we are sons, but so that we might experience sonship. So that we would not only know doctrinally and theologically that God is our Father, but we might experience His fatherhood in our own lives. And therefore, by the work of the Holy Spirit, our our hearts cry out, Abba, 
Father. This word here, Abba, is a very intimate term. It's more like dad than it is father. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was in the garden in the deepest, darkest moments of his life and he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He was looking at the possibility of going to the cross. In fact, the certainty of going to the cross. And he cried out to his Father, Abba, Father, in the moment of his deepest sorrow. John Stott writes, quote, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his Son, but to assure us of it by his Spirit. He sent his Son that we may have the status of sonship, and he sent his Spirit that we might have the experience of it. This comes through affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language, not of slaves, but of sons. And what's the language of sonship? The language of sonship is Abba, Father. And it's the Spirit that moves us. It's the Spirit that compels us to relate to God as Father and compels us to cry out, Abba. This is the language of sonship. Recently, I was watching a documentary on um, the MMA fighter, Conor McGregor. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. There's some rough language, but I watched the first uh, episode. And I admit that when Conor McGregor was in his prime, I did enjoy watching him fight. In this episode, McGregor's preparing to fight perhaps his toughest opponent, Khabib Numa Gomodet. I'm not even going to try. He was going to fight Khabib. And um, he gets carried away. Khabib's like his most fierce opponent yet, kind of. And he gets carried away about talking how he's going to defeat Khabib and so forth. And at one point he says, I'll take any man on and I'll defeat him. I'll take on God himself and defeat him. I just cringed. Obviously, that's not the way a Christian relates to God, right? That's not the language of sonship to challenge God. On the opposite extreme, maybe the, 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 well, maybe not the opposite extreme, but another way that people relate to God is they only relate to God when they're in a fix. You know, it's often been said that there's no atheist in a foxhole. And so when they're in a jam, you know, they, they cry out. They might, we might say, they throw a Hail Mary, right? God help me. But that's not the way that a Christian relates to God either. We don't just call out for him when we find ourselves in a jam and a fix. What Paul is saying here is that the Christian relates to God as a father. In Christ, the Christian is a son, and both by instruction, through reading God's word, we come to understand who God is as our Father, and by instinct, by the Spirit working and moving in us, we begin to relate to God as Father as well. And so this becomes the language of our heart. This is our daily activity. By the Spirit, we cry again and again and again, moment after moment, day after day, Father, 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 thank you for the good things that you have granted to me in my life. Father, 
Please, I look to you for provision for daily bread this day. Father, I'm afraid. Be near me. Help me. Father, Father, I have sinned. Forgive me. Father, I need you. Be close to me. This is the language of sonship. And this is the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. To not only know that God is Father, but to relate to God as Father, moment by moment, day by day, Abba, Father, is the language of sonship. Tim Keller, who is a wonderful Christian pastor and author, uh, passed away just a few weeks ago and As a result, there's been a lot of uh, his quotes and things like that going around on the internet, and he had such a compelling way, a powerful way of stating certain truths, and one that has appeared that I've seen over the last few weeks appeared a number of times is this, and it's, it's one I heard years ago, and it's stuck with me. He says, quote, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. End of quote. Isn't that powerful? The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. That's the, that's the type of relationship we're talking about in terms of relating to God as Father. And that is the language of sonship. Father. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. But I know you're present. I know you're near. I know you hear. Some of you may have not had a strong or a loving dad. Maybe your father was absent or neglectful or even abusive. And you may feel stuck. You may feel like it's so hard for me, it's so difficult for me to relate to God as father because I never had that kind of father figure in my life. Consider this. Paul is writing this letter in the first century to the church in Rome to a group of largely Gentiles who have come out of a pagan background. Do you think any of the members in the church in Rome came from broken homes? With bad dads, abusive, neglectful? You bet they did. And Paul says to those individuals, God sent His Spirit so that you can know, although you may not have known it from your earthly father, You can know from your heavenly Father the experience of sonship. You may struggle with that, but you don't have to be stuck. The Spirit can lead you. He can teach you to step into and experience the reality of sonship. He can teach you. He can train your heart To say moment by moment, Abba, Father. And to know God as your own Father. So, the direction of your life, the gift of sonship, the cry of adoption, and the fourth assurance that we are sons of God, the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. Look there in verse 16. Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this is the fourth assurance 
And what Paul is talking about here, it may make some of us feel uncomfortable. He's talking about a subjective inner reality that takes place that leads to a greater confidence and sense and assurance that God is our Father. You see it there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, what, we've see, what we see here is that Paul is saying that in terms of us knowing that we are sons of God, there's not only an objective criteria like, have you trusted in Christ? Are you believing in the promises of God? Are you seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh? These are some of the objective criteria that Paul has already established that are necessary for us to know that we are sons of God. Paul indicates, though, that there is also a subjective element to the assurance that God is our Father. And this subjective experience involves the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can understand why this might make some of us feel uncomfortable. Because it makes many of us feel uncomfortable because there are many folks who make appeals to subjective experiences of the Holy Spirit to then justify all kinds of things that are contrary to Scripture, right? So, if you're a college maybe and a young guy walks up to a young girl and he says, maybe he's never even met her before, you know. The Holy Spirit told me you're going to be my wife. If, if he does that, you probably should respond by saying, well, the Holy Spirit did not tell me I'm going to be your wife and just go the other way. Or we see the televangelist on TV. The Holy Spirit told me that all of you are to send me money until I have a million dollars. Or... Someone might say, the Spirit told me to divorce my wife and marry this woman with whom I've been committing adultery. You see, in all these ways, someone might make appeals to a subjective experience of the, of the Spirit that is entirely contrary with the Word of God. And, and we should note that the Spirit will never contradict the Word. Because it is the Spirit who is the author of the Word of God. And he will never contradict his own words, his own testimony. So there are all these dangers. But at the same time, Paul indicates here that there is a subjective and valid work of the Holy Spirit by which the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit and this work that he does is in complete consistency with his word and the testimony of the gospel. And in this testimony of the Spirit, with our spirit, he confirms within us that we are, in fact, sons and daughters of God. Now, I came across this quote this last week. I hesitated to share it because it's a little bit heady and academic, but it's so good. So let me explain. Let, let me read this quote to you from Daniel Wallace, who's a Greek scholar. Listen to what he says on this point. This is so powerful. He says, quote, I am a child of God, not just because the Bible tells me so, but because the Spirit convinces me so. His inner witness is both immediate and intuitive. 
It involves a non-discursive presence. Now, what does he mean by that? Discursive simply means language, words. You're in discourse with someone. It's a non-discursive presence. So the Spirit bears witness to me through His Word, right, primarily. But there is also this subjective reality in which the Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that's not just related to the Word, but there's a subjective sense. So it involves a non-discursive presence that is recognized in the soul. The inner witness of the Spirit is supra-logical. Not super, like S-U-P-E-R, but S-U-P-R-A. Supra-logical. It's beyond logic. It's above logic. But it is not sub-logical. That is beneath logic, inferior to logic. Now that, that is so powerful, and it entirely makes sense. You see, science and reason and logic are wonderful gifts from God. But how arrogant of us to think that anything that does not fit within the confines of our tiny minds or beyond the limits of our reason cannot be true or valid. There's no way that could be true or valid. If I can't see it, like, and observe it in a test tube or in a science lab, then surely it's not real. Doesn't it make sense that the eternal God, that He and the ways in which He would relate to His people, would exceed the limits of our finite minds? And that is, in fact, what Paul is describing here. It is not sublogical, beneath logic. It doesn't even contradict logic. It is beyond and above the limits of our logic. And it is true. The Spirit bears witness subjectively within our spirits that we are the children of God. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever had the experience of the inner witness and testimony of the Spirit? Maybe it's in gathered worship. And you hear the Word of God preached. And the promise of the Gospel comes to you with an unusual power and sense of assurance. And in that moment you feel, yes, Yes, through faith in Christ, I am a child of God. Or maybe it's while singing one of the rich hymns and songs that we sing. Or in a conversation with a fellow Christian as they speak God's truth and His Word over you. Or maybe it's in your personal time as you're reading the Bible and praying and you just have this deep sense My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And you sense deeply within yourself that it's true. Paul says, this is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. The deep assurance that God is, in fact, our Father through Christ, and He will never leave us. Or forsake us. Doesn't mean that we never have doubts. Doesn't mean that we never wrestle with assurance. 
but the Spirit comes along and speaks a word of confidence and comfort to us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You might be a believer and say, well, I don't know that I've ever had that experience before. And I would just say, I, I, I do think John Piper is right on this. I read something that Piper had written on this verse, and he says at this point, if you're a believer, you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, and you say, this kind of confuses you. You say, I don't know if I've ever had that experience before. This is the way Piper says it. He says, don't wait for a whisper. Look to Jesus. Don't wait for a whisper, the whisper of the Spirit, but fundamentally, primarily, look to Jesus. The objective criteria we discussed earlier, I believe it is right to say, is primary. The Bible and the promises of the gospel are primary. So, do you acknowledge that you're a sinner? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you believing the promise of the gospel that all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven? Is your life not perfect, but different because your faith in Jesus, because you have trusted in Jesus, you are now a son and daughter of God? Do you relate to God as Father like a child loves and depends upon the authority and provision and love of their dad? That's the objective criteria. That's primary. And if all that is true, then I imagine that you've already experienced something of the inner witness of the Spirit. If not, that's okay. Continue to trust in Christ by faith. Continue to trust the promises of the gospel and pray that the Spirit would give you a deeper sense of assurance and confidence of your Father's love. If you have experienced the inner witness of the Spirit, then rejoice. Because one of the main things I think that Paul is trying to teach us here in Romans chapter 8 is that the Father not only wants us to know that He is our Father, He wants us to experience His fatherhood. He wants us to experience what it means to know Him as Father. By God's grace, may He grant that to each one of us. Four assurances, four assurances that you are a son of God. The direction of your life, the gift of sonship, the cry of adoption, and the witness of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for saving us and redeeming us. We thank you, Lord, that not only are you our creator, not only are you our redeemer, you are our Father. Help us, Lord, to understand what that means more deeply. And Father, I do pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not experienced that reality yet, who's never turned from their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus and known the forgiveness of sins and been welcomed into the family of God. Lord, I pray that that would happen even now in these moments. By your Spirit, may you save, may you redeem, may you be calling lost sinners to yourself. We thank you that through faith in Jesus, we can know you as Abba, Father. And it's through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.